Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When Joe Strummer died on December 22, 2002, nobody could believe it. First of all, the guy was only 50. Second, this was a guy who ran marathons. And third, he'd been a strict vegetarian since 1971. And fourth, it was Joe Strummer, one of the toughest and most uncompromising musicians in the history of not just punk, not just alternative, but rock, period, full stop. Yet, it happened in his kitchen in Somerset, England, just after he finished walking the dog. Cause of death? A heart attack caused by an undiagnosed defect in his heart that had been there all along. Sudden heart failure. He immediately lost consciousness and never woke up. To be specific, he suffered from an intramural coronary artery. This is when one of the main vessels supplying blood to the heart ends up growing inside the heart muscle as the person grows older. It is an exceedingly rare condition with fewer than 100 fatal cases recorded worldwide in the last 50 years. That's what took Joe from us? What are the odds? Well, I guess I just told you. But even though Joe has been gone for 20 years now, he's still remembered and still revered as an iconic figure and someone whose work has been discovered by generations since he died. To help that along and to commemorate 20 years since his passing, I've come up with something I call 20 Short Stories About Joe Strummer. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. The wheat is going through a nuclear error, but I have no fear, because London is drowning Joe Strummer and The Clash, with the title track of London Calling, released on December 14, 1979. There's so much going on in that song because Joe was such a news junkie. The title comes from how the BBC World Service used to open their broadcasts into the occupied countries of World War II. That opening continued for years afterward. Joe first heard it while he was living in Germany with his parents. The nuclear error refers to the near meltdown at the Three Mile Island plant in Pennsylvania early in 1979. Why would London drown? Because there were concerns that the Thames could flood, destroying parts of the city. The Thames flood barrier was under construction at the time and wouldn't be completed for another five years. And if the North Sea did rise up, Joe was pretty sure he'd be okay because he lived in a high-rise apartment. At the time, nobody was talking about global warming. Instead, there were fears that we were heading for a new ice age. That's where that lyric came in. The reference to the yellowy eye? Probably a nod to Joe's case of hepatitis. Someone who was obviously infected spit at Joe during a performance, and he got it right in the mouth. The phony Beatlemania? Two interpretations here. First of all, there was a stage production called Beatlemania, which featured four guys who looked and acted and sang like the Beatles. Its marketing line was not the Beatles, but an incredible simulation, or phony in Joe's eyes. The other interpretation is that Joe was casting a withering eye on British punk rock, which burned hot and bright between 1977 and 1979, and hyped as the biggest thing since the Beatles by some members of the media. Again, phony, according to Joe. And the Morse code at the end? It's spelling out SOS. Mick Jones managed to get that sound out of his guitar pickup. 
Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and that whole London Calling story is but one of 20 Joe Sturmer tales that I've gathered for this program, remembering Joe 20 years after his death. I told the story of how he died in the intro, so we've got 18 to go. And there's a randomness to this, just to make it interesting. We continue with the origin story, which I will call story number three. Joe Strummer wasn't his real name. It was John Graham Mellers, and he wasn't British by birth. He was born in Ankara, Turkey. His father, Ron, had a job in the Foreign Service, and so Joe spent the first five years of his life in Europe. When he was nine, he and his brother David were enrolled in a British boarding school while mom and dad did diplomatic stuff. Until he was 17, he saw his parents maybe once a year. He went by the name Woody for a while because he'd developed such an admiration for American folk singer Woody Guthrie. Meanwhile, his brother followed a different path. He was basically a Nazi, a member of the racist National Front. He was also deep into the occult. And then in July 1970, David committed suicide. It was Joe who had to identify the body, which had been lying unfound for three days. Joe, no wait, sorry, John, went to art school, where he studied to be a cartoonist for about a year. But then he bought a ukulele for two pounds and was taught to play Johnny B. Good by a busker. That put him on the road to being a musician, but not before a detour into a job as a grave digger. He acquired an old reel-to-reel tape machine. And this, as far as we know, is the first ever Joe Strummer song to be recorded. That's called Crummy Bum Blues. His first band was called the Vultures, who were based out of Newport in Wales. Once they fell apart in 1975, John stopped calling himself Woody Miller and insisted that everyone refer to him as Joe Strummer. Not sure where the Joe came from, but the Strummer was a reference to him strumming his guitar. One of the first places Joe Strummer appeared was with a band called the 101ers. They played sweaty, rockabilly-styled rock in pubs and lived in a squat together at 101 Walterton Road in the Maida Vale area of London. This was their biggest song. Joe wrote it. It was inspired by his Spanish girlfriend, Palmolive, who would later join the Slits. And he sings it. It's called Keys to Your Heart. Joe Strummer's story number four has to do with his hair. There was a period of time when Joe loved his mohawk. You shave the sides of your head, leaving a strip from your forehead to the nape of your neck. Then you apply something to that hair in the middle so it sticks straight up and stays there. You can use anything from a professional hair product to egg yolk. So who came up with this idea? Well, the Mohawk Nation of North America, originally. And there's archaeological evidence that Mohawks were being supported by ancients in Europe, too. But I'm talking about modern culture. The first musician we think to sport a Mohawk was jazz musician Sonny Rollins back in the 1950s. But Joe's inspiration came from Robert De Niro. In the 1976 movie Taxi Driver, De Niro plays an ex-Marine trying to adjust to real life after the Vietnam War. In that war, some of the soldiers cut their hair into mohawks to intimidate the enemy. 
And as we get to the climax of the movie, De Niro, playing the very disturbed Travis Bickle, cuts his hair into a mohawk. That's what Joe Strummer saw, and that's what he adopted. And it appears that the mohawk spread to the rest of the punk community via Joe. But if we're going to give credit to someone for really bringing the mohawk into modern culture, we got to give props to Robert De Niro. Joe Strummer, story number five. He experienced an epiphany when he saw the Sex Pistols on April 3rd, 1976. They opened for the 101ers at a small venue in London. He was so impressed that he quit the band and was happy to be recruited for a new group. And that group would soon be named The Clash. Joe Strummer, story number six. He had a police record. When he was busking on the streets of London, he was arrested for playing illegally at a tube station. In June 1977, he was arrested for spray-painting The Clash on the wall of a hotel. That same month, he and drummer Topper Heaton were arrested and imprisoned overnight for stealing a pillowcase from a Holiday Inn. They were fined 100 pounds. He was arrested in Glasgow when he tried to come to the aid of fans who were being beaten by bouncers. And then in Hamburg, West Germany in 1980, he was arrested after he brained a member of the audience with his Telecaster. The guy had repeatedly grabbed the mic to scream something at the crowd about the clash having sold out. And Joe would have none of that. He was arrested for assaults. And that was, as far as we know, the last time he was in trouble with the police. Fourteen more Joe Strummer stories to go. And we'll continue after this. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally, and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We're going through 20 short stories about Joe Strummer as a way of commemorating the 20th anniversary of his passing. Story number seven involves a strange disappearance. On April 21st, 1982, The Clash canceled a tour because Joe had allegedly gone missing. Bernie Rhodes, the band's manager, said, I know we have a new album coming out. We're supposed to do this tour, but we can't do anything because we don't know where Joe is. And Joe was definitely gone, and he stayed gone for three weeks. When he did turn up, we learned that he had been hanging out in Paris. The crisis around all this, however, was a complete fabrication, a publicity stunt concocted by Bernie Rhodes. Ticket sales were slow for the Scottish portion of the upcoming combat rock tour, and Bernie needed a way to goose interest. The original plan had been for Joe to go to Texas with his friend, country singer Joe Eli, but then he bolted for Paris without telling anybody about his change in plans. He spent the time at the apartment of Gabby Salter, his girlfriend at the time. To pass the time, he did some touristy stuff. He grew a beard and hung out in a local bar. Joe also decided to run in the Paris Marathon as an unlisted participant. He later described his training regime this way, I quote, Drink 10 pints of beer the night before the race. You got that? And don't run a single step at least four weeks before the race. None at all. And don't forget the 10 pints of beer the night before. Hey, listen, it worked when Joe ran the same marathon the previous year. The stunt ultimately did not work. Fans figured that something was up, so ticket sales stopped. 
The tour was canceled and Combat Rock came out and still no Joe. It was a Dutch journalist who was hunting for Joe when he was discovered. This journalist called the Clash's publicist who went to Paris to collect Joe. So, why all this drama? Probably because Joe wanted to make a point about his importance to the band and because he was feeling like a robot and wanted some kind of freedom. But the whole thing backfired because this set the band on the road to its eventual breakup. After the tour, Joe fired bandmate Mick Jones. And after that, the band was never the same, breaking up in 1986. Joe Strummer story number eight. The Clash opened eight stadium dates for The Who in 1982, and Joe hated every second of it. They did get a live album out of the ordeal when they played Shea Stadium in New York, though. Story number nine. In 1975, Joe married a South African woman named Pamela Moulin so she could obtain British citizenship, and he was paid £100 for his trouble. And he used that money to buy a new guitar, the famous Telecaster that he would use for the rest of his life. Which leads to story number 10. Remember Gabby Salter, the girlfriend with the Paris apartment? Joe ended up having two daughters with her, Jazz and Lola. But Joe and Gabby couldn't get married because no one could find Pamela Moolman so that Joe could divorce her. And I want to liquefy everybody got by. I'll fuck you to the arrow. I poke up in the sky. Burn down the summer with a half closed eye. You won't succeed. I'll Joe Strummer, story number 11. When he was stuck at boarding school as a kid, Joe became an avid collector of stamps. Interesting, then, that the Royal Mail once issued a Clash postage stamp. It features the cover of the London Calling album. Story number 12. Anyone as famous as Joe is going to leave a trail of memorabilia behind. In 1979, an American journalist interviewed Joe during the band's first tour of the U.S. In Boston, the interviewer complimented Joe on the boots he was wearing. Joe immediately took them off and gave them to the guy. Fast forward to 2016 when the wife of that journalist took them on the American edition of Antiques Roadshow, and those boots were appraised at a minimum of $5,000. And story number 13. Joe was briefly a member of the Pogues. In 1987, guitarist Philip Chevron got sick. Over the course of one day, he taught Joe all his parts, and within 24 hours, Joe was on stage for an American tour. And then in 1991, he replaced Shane McGowan as singer when he quit. We probably should have a listen to an example of that. This is Joe fronting the Pogues with Turkish Song of the Damned. Pogues with Joe Strummer standing in for Shane McGowan on vocals. Seven more Strummer stories to go, and we'll get to them in just a sec. This is 20 short stories about Clash frontman Joe Strummer, who died on December 22, 2002. Story number 14. Joe had quite a run as an actor, starting in 1987 with a small part in a movie called Walker. He also appeared in the movies Straight to Hell, Mystery Train, I Hired a Contract Killer, Dr. Chance, and he even appeared as himself on South Park and participated in the Chef Aid album. Joe also worked on a number of soundtracks, including the Sid and Nancy biopic in 1986. This was the big song from that film. Put my 
Joe Strummer story number 15. Joe had a love-hate thing with radio. In 1977, after a London radio group declined to play any of the Clash's music, Joe wrote a song called Capital Radio One, which wasn't very complimentary. Some years later, that was followed by This Is Radio Clash, which evolved from a discussion about the Clash starting their own radio station, but that never happened. Joe finally got a chance to do things his way when he hosted a one-hour weekly show for the BBC World Service in the late 1990s. It was called, well, what do you think, London Calling. This, this is Joe Strummer's London Calling. Welcome, everybody. My name is Joe Strummer, and this is London Calling. Night and day, we're broadcasting out of Bush House in the heart of London, trying to dig the rocks out of the ground and play the tunes to make the sound. Traditionally, we start the program in only one way, which is a slice of uptown top-ranking rocket. Man, hotter than shafts, I would say. Here, the man for three million right wing turds, cool breeze ain't that baby cold, you know. Moving on to story number 16. Joe has some landmarks named after him. There's a plaza in the Spanish city of Granada called Placida Joe Strummer. There's also a very impressive mural of Joe at the corner of Portobello Road and Blenheim Crescent in London. And a British railway named one of their locomotives, Joe Strummer. Story number 17. Joe is either a hoarder or an archivist, depending on your point of view. After he died, it was discovered that he had several barns full of tapes and writings, 20,000 different items. His estate has been sorting through everything for the last several years, and a couple of compilations have been released with more to come. Story number 18. Joe was an environmentalist and was very concerned about global warming. He created a foundation called Future Forests, which is dedicated to planting trees to offset the carbon footprint he created making records and touring. That foundation, now called the Carbon Neutral Company, is still planting trees. What about the rumors of a clash reunion? It almost happened several times, but obviously something went wrong each time. This is story number 19. The first attempts at a reunion, which really would have involved patching up the relationship with Mick Jones, happened in the middle 80s. The issue was a protracted contract dispute with Sony Records. This went on for eight years, preventing any sort of reunion. In the end, when things were settled as much as they could be, the agreement stated that if the Clash were to reunite, they would be obligated to record for Sony. Joe didn't want that, so no reunion. There was another move to reunite sometime in the early 1990s. I'd been told that things went as far as casting extras for some kind of music video, but that fizzled out for some reason. Over the years, though, Joe maintained contact with Mick Jones and the other members of the Clash, even as he was cycling through a series of other bands. Joe and Mick even performed together on stage a couple of times. When Joe died in December 2002, he was working on more material for his current band, the Mescaleros. But he and Mick were also writing music together. Joe told them that those songs were to be used on a new Clash album. But then Joe died, putting an end to the reunion rumors forever. And finally, here's a personal Joe Strummer story from me. In November 1999, Joe and the Mescaleros were in Toronto playing a gig. 
He came to the radio station to do an interview, and a bunch of listeners were invited to watch. Joe rushed in a little late with a beat-up old acoustic guitar and tried to warm up his voice before an on-air performance. But the room was too crowded, too hot, too noisy. So he just bolted. He just, he just left. A couple of us followed him, hoping to coax Joe back into the studio. But it turns out he was okay. He just needed some space. We found him leaning against a fire hydrant on Young Street in Toronto, singing his heart out. We just let him be as shoppers moved past him on the crowded sidewalk. Everyone was oblivious to who he was or what was going on right in front of them. One of the most famous singers of the last 30 years was by himself, singing to the world on the street, just like some regular busker. But there was this one guy. He walked past Joe, took a look, but kept on walking for a few paces. And then he stopped, turned around, looked back at Joe, and then shook his head. No, couldn't be, he muttered. And then he went on his way. If he'd only known. Joe Strummer and the Mescaleros in Yalla Yalla from a 1999 album entitled Rock Art and the X-Ray Style. Years ago, I met Don Letts, who was a fixture on the original punk rock scene in London and a confidant of everyone in The Clash. He was adamant that the average lifespan of a rock band was seven years. You form, you get big, you peak, and then you start to fade as the members grow up and grow apart. And the example he gave was The Clash. He was glad that the band never got back together because it would have sullied their powerful legacy. He also believed that Joe Strummer would have continued to make music and shake things up in the ways only Joe could. Probably for decades. It's just so sad that we never got to hear everything that Joe had to say. There are many, many more shows like this one available in podcast form on any podcast platform you care to mention. All you have to do is download and go. Take as many as you want and pay nothing. You're always invited to my website for a daily shot of music news and information. That's a journal of musical things.com. And we can also connect through Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and even TikTok. All email can go to alan at alancross.ca. Technical productions by Rob Johnston. Talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the ongoing history of new music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Thank you.